Sesame and Lilies by John Ruskin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Oxenhandler of King's Treasuries, Part 2. The good book of the hour, then, I do not speak of the bad ones, is simply the useful or pleasant talk of some person whom you cannot otherwise converse with, printed for you. Very useful, often, telling you what you need to know. Very pleasant, often, as a sensible friend's present talk would be telling in the form of novel, firm fact-telling by the real agents concerned in the events of passing history. All these books of the hour, multiplying among us as education becomes more general, are a peculiar characteristic and possession of the present age. We ought to be entirely thankful for them, and entirely ashamed of ourselves if we make no good use of them. But we make the worst possible use if we allow them to usurp the place of true books. For, strictly speaking, they are not books at all, but merely letters or newspapers in good print. Our friends' letters may be delightful or necessary today, whether worth keeping or not, is to be considered. The newspaper may be entirely proper at breakfast time, but assuredly it is not reading for all day. So though bound up in a volume, the long letter which gives you so pleasant an account of the inns and roads and weather last year at such a place, or which tells you that amusing story or gives you the real circumstances of such and such events, however valuable for occasional reference, may not be in the real sense of the word a book at all, nor in the real sense to be read. A book is essentially not a talked thing, but a written thing, and written not with the view of mere communication, but of permanence. The book of talk is printed only because its author cannot speak to thousands of people at once. If he could, he would. The volume is mere multiplication of his voice. You cannot talk to your friend in India. If you could, you would. You write instead. That is mere conveyance of voice. But a book is written not to multiply the voice merely, not to carry it merely, but to preserve it, the author has something to say which he perceives to be true and useful, or helpfully beautiful. So far as he knows, no one has yet said it. So far as he knows, no one else can say it. He is bound to say it, clearly and melodiously, if he may, clearly at all events. In the sum of his life he finds this to be the thing or group of things manifest to him, this the piece of true knowledge or sight, which his share of sunshine and earth has permitted him to seize. He would fain set it down forever and grave it on rock if he could, saying, This is the best of me. For the rest I ate and drank and slept, loved and hated, like another. My life was as the vapor, and is not. But this I saw and knew. This, if anything of mine, is worth your memory. This is his writing. It is in his small human way, and with whatever degree of true inspiration is in him, his inscription or scripture, that is, a book. Perhaps you think no books were ever so written. But again, I ask you, do you at all believe in honesty or at all in kindness? Or do you think there is never any honesty or benevolence in wise people? None of us, I hope, are so unhappy as to think that. Well, whatever bit of a wise man's work is honestly and benevolently done, that bit is his book or his piece of art, footnote. Note this sentence carefully, and compare the Queen of the Air, page 106, end of footnote. It is mixed always with evil fragments, ill, done, redundant, affected work. But if you read rightly, you will easily discover the true bits, and those are the book. 
Now books of this kind have been written in all ages by their greatest men, by great leaders, great statesmen, and great thinkers. These are all at your choice, and life is short. You have heard as much before, yet have you measured and mapped out this short life and its possibilities. Do you know, if you read this, that you cannot read that, that what you lose today you cannot gain tomorrow? Will you go and gossip with your housemaid or your stable boy, when you may talk with queens and kings, or flatter yourselves that it is with any worthy consciousness of your own claims to respect that you jostle with the common crowd for entree here and audience there, when all the while this eternal court is open to you, with its society wide as the world, multitudinous as its days, the chosen and the mighty of every place and time. Into that you may enter always, in that you may take fellowship and rank according to your wish. From that, once entered into it, you can never be outcast but by your own fault, by your aristocracy of companionship there. Your own inherent aristocracy will be assuredly tested, and the motives with which you strive to take high place in the society of the living, measured as to all the truth and sincerity that are in them, by the place you desire to take in this company of the dead. The place you desire and the place you fit yourself for, I must also say, because, observe, this court of the past differs from all living aristocracy in this. It is open to labor and to merit, but to nothing else. No wealth will bribe, no name overawe, no artifice deceive, the guardian of those Elysian gates. In the deep sense, no vile or vulgar person ever enters there. At the portieres of that silent Faubourg Saint Germain, there is but brief question. Do you deserve to enter? Pass. Do you ask to be the companion of nobles? Make yourself noble, and you shall be. Do you long for the conversation of the wise? Learn to understand it, and you shall hear it. But on other terms, no. If you will not rise to us, we cannot stoop to you. The living Lord may assume courtesy, the living philosopher explain his thought to you with, with considerable pain, but here we neither feign nor interpret. You must rise to the level of our thoughts if you would be gladdened by them and share our feelings, if you would recognize our presence. This, then, is what you have to do, and I admit that it is much. You must, in a word, love these people, if you are to be among them. No ambition is of any use. They scorn your ambition. You must love them and show your love in these two following ways. 1. First, by a true desire to be taught by them and to enter into their thoughts. To enter into theirs, observe, not to find your own expressed by them. If the person who wrote the book is not wiser than you, you need not read it. If he be, he will think differently from you in many respects. Very ready we are to say of a book, how good this is, that's exactly what I think. But the right feeling is, how strange that is, I never thought of that before, and yet I see it is true, or if I do not now, I hope I shall some day. But whether thus submissively or not, at least be sure that you go to the author to get at his meaning, not to find yours, judge it afterwards if you think yourself qualified to do so. But ascertain it first, and be sure also, if the author is worth anything, that you will not get at his meaning all at once. Nay, that at his whole meaning you will not for a long time arrive in any wise. Not that he does not say what he means, and in strong words too, but he cannot say it all, 
and what is more strange, will not, but in a hidden way and in parables, in order that he may be sure you want it. I cannot quite see the reason for this, nor analyze that cruel reticence in the breasts of wise men, which makes them always hide their deeper thought. They do not give it you by way of help, but of reward, and will make themselves sure that you deserve it before they allow you to reach it. But it is the same with the physical type of wisdom, gold. There seems to you and me no reason why the electric forces of the earth should not carry whatever there is of gold within it at once to the mountain tops, so that kings and people might know that all the gold they could get was there, and without any trouble of digging or anxiety or chance or waste of time, cut it away and coin as much as they needed. But nature does not manage it so. She puts it in little fissures in the earth. Nobody knows where. You may dig long and find none. You must dig painfully to find any. And it is just the same with men's best wisdom. When you come to a good book, you must ask yourself, am I inclined to work as an Australian miner would? Are my pickaxes and shovels in good order? And am I in good trim myself, my sleeves well up to the elbow, and my breath good, and my temper? And keeping the figure a little longer, even at cost of tiresomeness, for it is a thoroughly useful one, the metal you are in search of being the author's mind or meaning, his words are as the rock which you have to crush and smelt in order to get at it, and your pickaxes are your own care, wit, and learning, your smelting furnace is your own thoughtful soul. Do not hope to get at any good author's meaning without those tools and that fire. Often you will need sharpest, finest chiseling and patientest fusing before you can gather one grain of the metal. And therefore, first of all, I tell you earnestly and authoritatively, I know I am right in this, you must get into the habit of looking intensely at words and assuring yourself of their meaning, syllable by syllable, nay, letter by letter, for though it is only by reason of the opposition of letters in the function of signs to sounds in function of signs that the study of books is called literature, and that a man versed in it is called, by the consent of nations, a man of letters instead of a man of books or of words, you may yet connect with that accidental nomenclature this real principle, that you might read all the books in the British Museum, if you could live long enough, and remain an utterly illiterate, uneducated person, but that if you read ten pages of a good book, letter by letter, that is to say, with real accuracy, you are forevermore in some measure an educated person. The entire difference between education and non-education, as regards the merely intellectual part of it, consists in this accuracy, a well-educated gentleman may not know many languages, may not be able to speak any, but his own, may have read very few books, but whatever language he knows, he knows precisely, whatever word he pronounces, he pronounces rightly, above all, he is learned in the peerage of words, knows the words of true descent, and ancient blood at a glance from words of modern canal remembers all their ancestry, their intermarriages, distantest relationships, and the extent to which they were admitted, and offices they held among the national noblesse of words at any time and in any country. But an uneducated person may know by memory any number of languages and talk them all, and yet truly know not a word of any, not a word even of his own. 
an ordinarily clever and sensible seaman will be able to make his way ashore at most ports yet he has only to speak a sentence of any language to be known for an illiterate person so also the accent or turn of expression of a single sentence will at once mark a scholar and this is so strongly felt so conclusively admitted by educated persons that a false accent or a mistaken syllable is enough in the parliament of any civilized nation to assign to a man a certain degree of inferior standing for ever and this is right but it is a pity that the accuracy insisted on is not greater and required to a serious purpose it is right that a false latin quantity should excite a smile in the house of commons but it is wrong that a false english meaning should not excite a frown there let the accent of words be watched by all means but let their meaning be watched more closely still and fewer will do the work a few words well chosen and well distinguished will do work that a thousand cannot when every one is acting equivocally in the function of another yes and words if they are not watched will do deadly work sometimes there are masked words droning and skulking about us in europe just now there never were so many owing to the spread of a shallow blotching blundering infectious information or rather deformation everywhere and to the teaching of catechisms and phrases at schools instead of human meanings there are masked words abroad i say which nobody understands but which everybody uses and most people will also fight for live for or even die for fancying they mean this or that or the other or things dear to them for such words wear chameleon cloaks ground lion cloaks of the color of the ground of any man's fancy on that ground they lie in wait and rend him with a spring from it there were never creatures of prey so mischievous never diplomatists so cunning never poisoners so deadly as these masked words they are the unjust stewards of all men's ideas whatever fancy or favorite instinct a man most cherishes he gives to his favorite masked word to take care of for him the word at last comes to have an infinite power over him you cannot get at him but by its ministry and in languages so mongrel and breed as the english there is a fatal power of equivocation put into men's hands almost whether they will or no in being able to use greek or latin forms for a word when they want it to be respectable and saxon or otherwise common forms when they want to discredit it what a singular and salutary effect for instance would be produced on the minds of people who are in the habit of taking the form of the words they live by for the power of which those words tell them if we always either retained or refused the greek form biblos or biblion as the right expression for book instead of employing it only in the one instance in which we wish to give dignity to the idea and translating it everywhere else how wholesome it would be for the many simple persons who worship the letter of god's word instead of its spirit just as other idolaters worship his picture instead of his presence if in such places for instance as acts nineteen we retained the greek expression instead of translating it and they had to read many of them also which used curious arts brought their bibles together and burnt them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver or if on the other hand we translated instead of retaining it and always spoke of the holy book instead of holy bible 
it might come into more heads than it does at present that the word of god by which the heavens were of old and by which they are now kept in store footnote two peter three five through seven end of footnote cannot be made a present of to anybody in morocco binding nor sewn on any wayside by help either of steam plough or steam press but is nevertheless being offered to us daily and by us with contumely refused and sown in us daily and by us as instantly as may be choked so again consider what effect has been produced on the english vulgar mind by the use of the sonorous latin form damno in translating the greek katakrino when people charitably wish to make it forcible and the substitution of the temperate condemn for it when they choose to keep it gentle and what notable sermons have been preached by illiterate clergymen on he that believeth not shall be damned though they would shrink with horror from translating hebrews eleven seven the saving of his house by which he damned the world or john eight twelve woman hath no man damned thee she saith no man lord jesus answered her neither do i damn thee go and sin no more and divisions in the mind of europe which have cost seas of blood and in the defence of which the noblest souls of men have been cast away in frantic desolation countless as forest leaves though in the heart of them founded on deeper causes have nevertheless been rendered practicably possible mainly by the european adoption of the greek word for a public meeting to give peculiar respectability to such meetings when held for religious purposes and other collateral equivocations such as the vulgar english one of using the word priest as a contraction for presbyter now in order to deal with words rightly this is the habit you must form nearly every word in your language has been first a word of some other language of saxon german french latin or greek not to speak of eastern and primitive dialects and many words have been all these that is to say have been greek first latin next french and german next and english last undergoing a certain change of sense and use on the lips of each nation but retaining a deep vital meaning which all good scholars feel in employing them even at this day if you do not know the greek alphabet learn it young or old girl or boy whoever you may be if you think of reading seriously which of course implies that you have some leisure at command learn your greek alphabet then get good dictionaries of all these languages and whenever you are in doubt about a word hunt it down patiently read max muller's lectures though roughly to begin with and after that never let a word escape you that looks suspicious it is severe work but you will find it even at first interesting and at last endlessly amusing and the general gain of your character in power and precision will be quite incalculable mind this does not imply knowing or trying to know greek or latin or french it takes a whole life to learn any language perfectly but you can easily ascertain the meanings through which the english word has passed and those which in a good writer's work it must still bear and now merely for example's sake i will with your permission read a few lines of a true book with you carefully and see what will come out of them i will take a book perfectly known to you all no english words are more familiar to us yet nothing perhaps has been less read with sincerity i will take these few following lines from lycidas last came and last did go the pilot of the galilean lake two massy keys he bore of metals twain 
the golden opes the iron shuts amain. He shook his mitred locks, and stern bespake, How well could I have spared for thee, young swain, Enow of such as for their bellies sake, Creep and intrude and climb into the fold, Of other care they little reckoning make, Than how to scramble at the shearer's feast, And shove away the worthy bidden guest, Blind mouths, that scarce themselves know how to hold, A sheep-hook, or have learned aught else, The least that to the faithful herdsman's art belongs. What wrecks it them? What need they? They are sped, and when they list, Their lean and flashy songs, Great on their scrannel pipes of wretched straw, The hungry sheep look up, and are not fed, But swoln with wind, and the rank mist they draw, Wrought inwardly, and foul contagion spread, Besides what the grim wolf with privy paw Daily devours apace, and nothing said. Let us think over this passage and examine its words. First, it is not singular to find Milton assigning to St. Peter Not only his full episcopal function, But the very types of it which Protestants usually refuse most passionately. His mitred locks. Milton was no bishop-lover. How comes St. Peter to be mitred? Two massy keys he bore. Is this, then, the power of the keys claimed by the bishops of Rome, and is it acknowledged here by Milton only in a poetical license, for the sake of its picturesqueness, that he may get the gleam of the golden keys to help his effect? Do not think it. Great men do not play stage tricks with doctrines of life and death. Only little men do that. Milton means what he says, and means it with his might, too, is going to put the whole strength of his spirit presently into the saying of it. For though not a lover of false bishops, he was a lover of true ones, and the lake pilot is here, in his thoughts, the type and head of true episcopal power. For Milton reads that text, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, quite honestly. Puritan though he be, he would not blot it out of the book, because there have been bad bishops. Nay, in order to understand him, we must understand that verse first. It will not do to eye it askance or whisper it under our breath, as if it were a weapon of an adverse sect. It is a solemn, universal assertion, deeply to be kept in mind by all sects. But perhaps we shall be better able to reason on it if we go on a little farther and come back to it. For clearly this marked insistence on the power of the true episcopate is to make us feel more weightily what is to be charged against the false claimants of episcopate, or generally against false claimants of power and rank in the body of the clergy, they who, for their belly's sake, creep and intrude and climb into the fold. Do not think Milton uses those three words to fill up his verse as a loose writer would. He needs all the three, especially those three, and no more than those creep and intrude and climb. No other words would or could serve the turn, and no more could be added, for they exhaustively comprehend the three classes correspondent to the three characters of men who dishonestly seek ecclesiastical power. First, those who creep into the fold, who do not care for office, nor name, but for secret influence, and do all things occultly and cunningly, consenting to any servility of office or conduct, so only that they may intimately discern, and unawares direct, the minds of men. Then those who intrude, thrust, that is, themselves into the fold, who by natural insolence of heart, 
and stout eloquence of tongue and fearlessly perseverant self-assertion obtain hearing and authority with the common crowd lastly those who climb who by labor and learning both stout and sound but selfishly exerted in the cause of their own ambition gain high dignities and authorities and become lords over the heritage though not examples to the flock now go on of other care they little reckoning make than how to scramble at the shearer's feast blind mouths i pause again for this is a strange expression a broken metaphor one might think careless and unscholarly not so its very audacity and pithiness are intended to make us look close at the phrase and remember it those two monosyllables express the precisely accurate contraries of right character in the two great offices of the church those of bishop and pastor a bishop means a person who sees a pastor means one who feeds the most unbishoply character a man can have is therefore to be blind the most unpastoral is instead of feeding to want to be fed to be a mouth take the two reverses together and you have blind mouths we may advisably follow out this idea a little nearly all the evils in the church have arisen from bishops desiring power more than light they want authority not outlook whereas their real office is not to rule though it may be vigorously to exhort and rebuke it is the king's office to rule the bishop's office is to oversee the flock to number it sheep by sheep to be ready always to give full account of it now it is clear he cannot give account of the souls if he has not so much as numbered the bodies of his flock the first thing therefore that a bishop has to do is at least to put himself in a position in which at any moment he can obtain the history from childhood of every living soul in his diocese and of its present state down in that back street bill and nancy knocking each other's teeth out does the bishop know all about it has he his eye upon them has he had his eye upon them can he circumstantially explain to us how bill got into the habit of beating nancy about the head if he cannot he is no bishop though he had a mitre as high as salisbury steeple he is no bishop he has sought to be at the helm instead of the masthead he has no sight of things nay you say it is not his duty to look after bill in the back street what the fat sheep that have full fleeces you think it is only those he should look after while go back to your milton the hungry sheep look up and are not fed besides what the grim wolf with privy paw bishops knowing nothing about it daily devours apace and nothing said but that's not our idea of a bishop footnote compare the thirteenth letter in time and tide end of footnote perhaps not but it was st paul's and it was milton's they may be right or we may be but we must not think we are reading either one or the other by putting our meaning into their words i go on but swollen with wind and the rank mist they draw this is to meet the vulgar answer that if the poor are not looked after in their bodies they are in their souls they have spiritual food and milton says they have no such thing as spiritual food they are only swollen with wind at first you may think that is a coarse type and an obscure one but again it is a quite literally accurate one take up your latin and greek dictionaries and find out the meaning of spirit it is only a contraction of the latin word breath and an indistinct translation of the greek word for wind the same word is used in writing the wind bloweth where it listeth and in writing so is every one that is born of the spirit 
born of the breath, that is, for it means the breath of God in soul and body. We have the true sense of it in our words inspiration and expire. Now there are two kinds of breath with which the flock may be filled, God's breath and man's. The breath of God is health and life and peace to them, as the air of heaven is to the flocks on the hills. But man's breath, the word which he calls spiritual, is disease and contagion to them, as the fog of the fen. They rot inwardly with it, they are puffed up by it, as a dead body by the vapors of its own decomposition. This is literally true of all false religious teaching. The first and last and fatalist sign of it is that puffing up. Your converted children, who teach their parents, your converted convicts, who teach honest men, your converted dunces, who having lived in cretinous stupefaction half their lives, suddenly awaking to the fact of their being a god, fancy themselves, therefore, his peculiar people and messengers. Your sectarians of every species, small and great, Catholic or Protestant, of high church or low, in so far as they think themselves exclusively in the right and others wrong, and preeminently in every sect, those who hold that men can be raved by thinking rightly instead of doing rightly, by word instead of act, and wish instead of work, these are the true fog children clouds, these without water bodies, these of putrescent vapor and skin, without blood or flesh, blown bagpipes for the fiends to pipe with, corrupt and corrupting, swollen with wind, and the rank mist they draw. Lastly, let us return to the lines respecting the power of the keys, for now we can understand them. Note the difference between Milton and Dante in their interpretation of this power. For once, the latter is weaker in thought. He supposeth both the keys to be of the gate of heaven, one is of gold, the other of silver. They are given by St. Peter to the sentinel angel, and it is not easy to determine the meaning either of the substances of the three steps of the gate or of the two keys. But Milton makes one of gold, the key of heaven, the other of iron, the key of the prison, in which the wicked teachers are to be bound who have taken away the key of knowledge, yet entered not in themselves. We have seen that the duties of bishop and pastor are to see and feed, and of all who do so, it is said, He that watereth shall be watered also himself. But the reverse is truth also. He that watereth not shall be withered himself. And he that seeth not shall himself be shut out of sight, shut into the perpetual prison house. And that prison opens here as well as hereafter. He who is to be bound in heaven must first be bound on earth. That command to the strong angels of which the rock apostle is the image, take him and bind him hand and foot, and cast him out, issues in its measure against the teacher for every help withheld, and for every truth refused, and for every falsehood enforced, so that he is more strictly fetted the more he fetters, and farther outcast as he more and more misleads, till at last the bars of the iron cage close upon him, and as the golden opes the iron shuts amain.